If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. The symptoms were horrendous and of swift and virulent onset. So, for instance, a soldier home from leave who'd suddenly gone down with symptoms of Spanish flu in the middle of Manchester, having perhaps just got off the train at Manchester Piccadilly Station, wouldn't suddenly just feel a bit weak and a bit ill and want to get home to his mum's and lie down. He would collapse. He would be hemorrhaging blood from his lungs. He might have blood coming out of his nostrils. That was Catherine Arnold speaking about the devastating 1918 Spanish flu outbreak. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today we're going to be exploring the story of the Spanish flu outbreak, which killed tens of millions of people across a world that was already racked by war in 1918. It's the subject of a new book by the writer Catherine Arnold, and she spoke to our Deputy Digital Editor, Eleanor Evans. I'm here at the offices of Michael O'Mara Books in London with writer Catherine Arnold. Hello, Catherine. Hello. You've written a number of histories of London, considering the dark and hidden aspects of the city's history, from execution and the treatment of mental illness to prostitution and the London underworld. 
Your latest book, Pandemic 1918, is on a similarly difficult subject, covering the devastating Spanish flu pandemic, which swept across the world 100 years ago, causing an estimated death toll between 25 million and perhaps as many as 100 million people worldwide. Catherine, I imagine this must have been quite a difficult book for you to write, particularly considering the way you look at many individual stories who suffered and some who died. Um, Could you perhaps explain a little about the immense scale of the pandemic and the timeline you're looking at in the book? Yes, you're correct in saying that it was um, a difficult book to write for personal reasons as well, which we may go into later. It was such an enormous onslaught, such a vast pandemic, that I felt the only way I could tell it was in minute particulars, to quote Blake, was to tell it through dozens and dozens of little individual stories. I suppose the closest thing you could could compare it with would be a disaster movie, where you see the top panjandrums, you um, you see the Kaiser, you see Mahatma Gandhi, the British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, all afflicted with this distressing and mysterious illness. And you wonder, are they going to survive? And then there are all the stories of people who may be memorialised only by their names on a tombstone or an entry in a diary. So the the personal element of of it was something that really appealed to me. And it seemed to me the only way I could really bring it to life. So a contentious aspect of the history of the virus is how it might have originated. So what did you find about what historians think about the the flu's origins? Right, the most popular theory now is that it originated in China, which sadly has been the basis of many um, outbreaks of flu over the centuries. The theory then being that it was brought over from China, from places like Manchuria, by Chinese labourers who recruited to help with war effort. And they came over, they worked in France um, on the Western Front. They they were sent to America. Um, Basically, they they were working as labourers. And it's felt that they may have been carrying the virus with them. And the fact that um, China itself didn't really suffer that badly during the epidemic suggests that there may have been a degree of herd immunity, that the Chinese had already experienced so many waves of flu. They'd acquired a degree of immunity to the symptoms. And the scale of what you're looking at, it truly was a, a global um, spread, a global pandemic. So could you give us a sense of the scale and how it hit each country that you looked at? The scale was absolutely giddying. You're not just talking about one city or one town or one country. You're talking about the British Isles, the whole of Africa, from sub-Saharan Africa right through to North Africa, North America, South America and Canada... Australia, although the Aussies were fairly good at keeping flu out through a very um, stringent form of quarantine, but even the Australians um, succumbed to flu after the armistice in late 1918, early 1919. Again, um, New Zealand and India. It's very, very difficult to estimate the amount of people who were killed in India, not just... um, British India, but the whole of India, because record-keeping was so uh, erratic. Basically, the first wave appears to have started in the spring of 1918. February and March, at Etaple on the Western Front, the French camp, they were beginning to record deaths there, but also a number of deaths were being recorded in the United States, 
at military camps. So it, it almost seemed as if the disease was starting off in two different places at the same time. Now, these early waves were regarded as mild because the level of mortality was quite low. Some people were dying, but not many. Not enough for it really to be a matter of concern. The second wave really kicked in in June and July. This was when you were looking at um, a global pandemic affecting areas such as Germany, Russia, the United States. The worst, the third wave, the worst wave started in what the Americans call the fall. And this is when you're having entire communities dying in places like Chicago, Philadelphia, in Britain, in France. It seemed as if the flu had spread around the world. In fact, I always like to quote, it's a bit of an, an anachronism, but I always like to quote a line from a Bond film where one of the villains says, oh, I have set a necklace of death around the world. And this is always how the Spanish flu seems to me, like a necklace of death around the globe. You mentioned the war there, and obviously that um, adds to the great tra tragedy of this pandemic, that it came in the final year of the First World War. So how, what did you find? How did the war affect the spread of the disease, and how did the disease affect wartime? Well, in terms of the spread of the disease, the war was the worst thing that could have happened. As we know, with previous pandemics, such as the Black Death and the plague which hit London and England in 1665, plague and disease will circulate globally because they're brought by uh, the movements of trade and people travelling from one country to another. Of course, what made it worst in the last year of the war was the increased number of troop movements. So not only had we got troops mobilising around the globe in the fourth year of a world war, which spread things out, but we'd also got America entering the war and these poor young American doughboys from the Midwest with very little herd immunity against any kind of disease suddenly falling prey to the effect of Spanish flu when they were over in the trenches. So a number of people listening may perhaps be suffering from a few flu symptoms given the time of year. Um, but this flu wasn't necessarily what we know it to be today. So could you perhaps talk about the horrible symptoms of this, this terrible disease? Yes, I mean, we've, we've all had flu in one form or another, possibly quite recently. The difference with Spanish flu was that the symptoms were horrendous and of swift and virulent onset. So, for instance... A soldier home for leap from leave who'd suddenly gone down with the symptoms of Spanish flu in the middle of Manchester, having perhaps just got off the train at Manchester Piccadilly Station, wouldn't suddenly just feel a bit weak and a bit ill and want to get home to his mum's and lie down. He would collapse. He would be hemorrhaging blood from his lungs. He might have blood coming out of his nostrils and his anus. His skin would be turning blue from lack of oxygen. He would be clawing at the air with what we call air hunger. So the symptoms were extreme, disgusting and swift. It could be transmitted very quickly. For instance, again, to use the example of Manchester, when they had um, a big gathering in Albert Square, Manchester, to celebrate the armistice, it was absolutely the worst thing they could have done. A couple of days later, over a 1,000 people had contracted Spanish flu just from being exposed to each other. And how did you find that 
various authorities in the very countries that were afflicted. How did you find they responded to the to the outbreaks? Right. In the United States, they were really proactive. They realised early on in their kind of civil contingency plans that they were dealing with um, a pandemic the like of which they'd never seen before. Many American cities responded by closing down all places of amusement, theatres, cinemas, variety halls, burlesque halls, also churches. Uh, So any kind of mass congregation of people was banned because they realised that this was the way the flu was transmitted. Over here in Britain, um, Walter Fletcher, who was an expert brought in to head up what we would call the Home Office in response to the flu. He pleaded with the authorities to get um, the omnibuses closed down and to get mass quarantine. The response of the authorities in the form of Sir Walter Rushhome was that nothing must stand in the way of the war effort. So basically the authorities were saying, we can't close down the tubes and the omnibuses. People need to get to work, they need to get to the munitions factories, they need to get to the front. This is just a little bit of flu, it's not important. What's important is that the war machine must be kept going. So there's really quite a quite a big difference between the American and the British approach. You mentioned that one chair of a board of health in Massachusetts described it as like fighting with a ghost. Yes. Um, which... I thought was a really interesting way of putting it. Can you explain how that kind of uh, characterised the spread of the disease? Yeah, I think fighting with a ghost was a great description because medics, um, doctors, experts didn't know what they were up against. It was this strange new phantom disease. They had real, really no idea why it had broken up when it had and they had no idea how to tackle it. They didn't really have an understanding of bacteria and virus They knew about disease, but really the electron microscope wasn't developed until the 1930s. So they didn't have a really clear definition of what they were working with. All they knew was this was um, a really killer form of flu that was overwhelming not only the patients, but the nurses and doctors as well. So there was something of the old-fashioned horror story about it. They had no clear idea how to deal with it. They didn't have any vaccinations. There were vaccinations available for the troops, but not for civilians. And so as healthcare providers, they had really to stand by and see people die and not know how to preserve life, which must have been an an absolutely terrifying experience. If we can talk about the the virus's name, um, Spanish flu, and in your book you choose to call it the Spanish lady as well because that was how it was characterised at the time. Um, Could you explain if it was Spanish in origin or where that name came from and and the Spanish lady too? Right, yeah. The first thing is that it was called the Spanish flu, Um, not because there was anything particularly Spanish about it, but because it was first really identified in Spain What happened is that around about March, April 1918, King Alfonso XIII of Spain contracted this new extreme flu. At first, the local papers made a bit of a joke about it. It was regarded almost as an affectation. So journalists were saying, oh, what is this fancy new flu? Oh, it's just some trendy thing that people think they're getting. And then it didn't just knock out Alfonso, it knocked out half his cabinet so they could barely run the country. The thing about Spain at the time was that it was neutral. Um, Alfonso was related to the British royal family and, of course, the German royal family. 
he decided he didn't want to take sides. He didn't want to be involved in the Great War. He was happy to just get along with everybody. This meant that there was no censorship in Spain. As a result of this, this strange new, new flu could be talked about and speculated about openly. It could be written about in the papers. And more importantly, British doctors could talk about this new flu in their own medical journals, the BMJ and the Lancet. What they couldn't do was talk about this in something like the London Times. When the London Times was confronted with Spanish flu, the attitude of the leader writer was to say, oh, this is just some fashionable new thing. Oh, you don't want to worry about that. You know, it's just some trendy thing everybody thinks they've got. They were instructed to play it down. They weren't exactly handed a D notice by um, Dora. Um, but it was felt that to make a fuss about flu when we were in the fourth year of a serious war was a bit snowflakey, really. Hence, it was, it was described as the Spanish flu because Alfonso had got it and because it could be described openly. The thing about the Spanish lady is slightly different. Um, as this new flu began to take on a life of its own, it was necessary for the cartoonists and the writers to have a kind of physical entity of Spanish flu. And so they settled on this image of a Spanish lady, a gypsy, in a mantilla and a nice dress, castanets possibly, a kind of female embodiment of this dreadful thing. This is nothing new, you know, it's, it's kind of the femme fatale, it's a dark woman, it's the Mater Dolorosa. There's also kind of this idea that um, <clears throat> Spanish flu was like this because she was like a gypsy whore who would just give everybody her favours and spread it around a bit. So at first I thought this was a seriously misogynistic um, kind of confection. And when I looked at the cartoons, I thought, well, this is quite offensive. And then I realised the power of this image and how, after a while, she is like this Carly figure. And she's much parodied as well. There are a number of political cartoons of the Spanish lady ignoring the angel of peace. And the sheer power of this image began to appeal to me. And I thought, yes, I think I will call her the Spanish lady because even though she's... Um, a worrying and disturbing figure. There's something of the um, archetype about her. So, it, it, you know, ultimately she appealed to me. So as we've already mentioned, your account um, explores or tracks the um, path of the flu through many individual accounts. And I think many people might be surprised to hear of the names that contracted the flu and recovered. Um, some that caught me were David Lloyd George and Franklin Roosevelt as well. Could you talk a little bit about those? <clears throat> yes, of course. Well, in the case of David Lloyd George, he visited Manchester in September 1918 because he was being given the freedom of the city because um, even though he was Welsh, he'd grown up in Manchester. So he arrived in Manchester for what should have been a fairly straightforward civic ceremony with obviously a bit of fuss because he was the um, Prime Minister of a wartime government. He arrived in the city, was greeted by hordes of loyal people all clapping, and then he was wheeled around Manchester in the rain in an open-topped vehicle. Not surprisingly, after a couple of hours, he came down with a chill. This again, it was thought, needn't worry us too much. But then he was taken to his rooms in Manchester Town Hall, which was a huge, spectacular building where he'd have been kind of staying for a couple of nights. And it swiftly became evident that he'd got flu 
a top doctor was sent for. And at first, it seemed important that this was kept a secret because uh, the last thing the German war machine needed to know was that the British PM had got what could be fatal flu. For several days, his life hovered in the balance. Top doctors were sent to see him. He pulled through, but it took him several weeks to recover. And some say that he was never quite the same again. In the case of um, FDR, at that time, he was a long way from his um, incarn- the incarnation of FDR that we would see during World War II. He was a young junior politician. And he was on his way back from France, where he'd been out to visit the troops. He was a kind of a minor minister at this point. And he travelled back to the States on a troop ship called SS Leviathan. So uh, Roosevelt had developed flu on the way back from France. And his wife, Eleanor, heard from the Navy Department that Roosevelt had double pneumonia and they were to meet him on arrival with a doctor and an ambulance. And according to Eleanor, the flu had been raging in Brest and Franklin and his party had attended a funeral in the rain. The ship on which they returned was a floating hospital. Men and officers died on the way home and they they were buried at sea. And among the passengers was Prince Axel of Denmark and his entourage, and they were coming to the United States for a visit. Uh, Prince Axel had no doubt as to what was needed to stop him being afflicted with the flu. When they felt the flu coming on, they consulted no doctor, but took to their berths with a quart of whiskey each. In the course of a day or two, whether because of the efficiency of the whiskey or because of their own resistance, they were practically recovered. <laughs> Another person who um, was afflicted was uh, Vera Britton, the author of the Testament of Youth memoir of the First World War. Could you tell us a bit about her experience of the flu? Yeah, this is very much my speculation. I was looking at Vera's reminiscences of nursing as a, <clears throat> a VAD, volunteer aid detachment um, nurse. And she describes symptoms that she developed. She was about to go home on leave and she was about to sail back to Britain to meet her brother. And she was overcome overcome with um, terrible viral symptoms, a fever, and really just the feeling that she ought to die. Nevertheless, she sailed back to Britain. She met up with her brother. And then instead of having a really nice leave away from the front, seeing her family, she spent the next nine days feeling dreadfully ill, Now, she regarded this as just trench fever or PUO, um, which is basically a disease of an unknown origin. But the way she describes it leads me to believe that she had an early um, version of Spanish flu. It led to some really violent um, occurrences. I think there was one moment you um, identify where a family, um, someone killed a family member to stop them from either get contracting the disease or to relieve them of their, their pain? <clears throat> uh, unfortunately, this happened more than once. There were a number of newspaper headlines where somebody, usually the father, sometimes the mother, would respond to, to the disease by a family slaying. Um, it wasn't always the case that they had the disease. There was one outbreak in Chicago where a man killed his family and it was later discovered that none of them actually had Spanish flu. So you could say it led to a form of mass hysteria. And also certainly among people who had contracted the flu, one of the symptoms could be um, 
it, it caused almost a kind of mental breakdown. The, the symptoms were such that the victim became profoundly confused and dangerous. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. One image that's included in your book that struck me particularly was um, the image of the police in Seattle all wearing the masks that became emblematic of the of the pandemic. So could you talk about how it affected essential services across the globe? Well, in terms of affecting essential services, uh, it meant really a breakdown in effective policing and medical care. Uh, in London in particular, so many police officers were off that um, it was very difficult to contain low-wave crime. On the other hand, so many people were ill that the normal low-grade crime that you'd imagine, um, like pickpocketing, theft, theft from dwelling places, the usual opportunistic crimes uh, were down simply because everybody was too ill to take, you know, to take the opportunity. Uh, what was strange was also the way people looked because... Uh, not in this country so much, but certainly in the States, flu masks were issued and were worn um, de rigueur. Uh, you could be fined for not wearing a flu mask. And so you get these really strange, quite surreal images of traffic police on duty wearing a mask or people just walking up and down in their flu masks or, in one case, um, a family of women and their cats wearing flu masks. So it, it lends a kind of sci-fi quality to it and something I didn't really get much opportunity to go into in the book, but part of the, leg the creative legacy of the flu was, I don't know if you're familiar with an artist called uh, Giorgio de Chirico, but he was um, an Italian um, sort of surrealist painter. He used to paint lots of, pa lots of pictures of deserted piazzas and squares and what should have been busy streets, but there's nobody in them. And he'd actually lived through the Spanish flu himself in Italy. And I wonder if it was his memory of seeing all these deserted streets. Because you imagine, you go into central London today, you expect to see people whizzing around in Piccadilly. Just imagine getting the tube up to Piccadilly now and instead of it being full of tourists and people on their way home from work, not a soul in sight because everybody's either dead or terrified and at home, not going out. 
You mentioned earlier that this um, pandemic in particular has a personal connection for you. Would you be happy to talk about that? Yes, certainly. Um, It was always known when I was growing up that my grandparents, my father's parents, had died as a result of the Spanish flu. And when I was growing up, this was just a strange, exotic label. I didn't really know what it meant. My father was very unwilling to talk about it. To get some scale of the, the time scale of this, my father was a lot older than my mother. So basically, when he was about three or four, a little boy at Levington Spa, his mother, an aspiring actress, was about 20. And his father, who'd been a barrister, was off with the Royal Flying Corps, and he was probably about 10 years older. And within the course of a week or so, they both contracted Spanish flu and died. And so my father was then brought up by a person he called his guardian, who was basically an elderly aunt who ran a nursing home in Leamington. And so in many ways, was the best person to take him in. And this left a huge gap in his life because he was an orphan. And so I grew up without having any relatives on that side of the family. That, as a, When I was growing up, that seemed quite normal because you take it for granted. It's only in retrospect that I realised what an enormous impact this had made on him and how it had left him kind of flawed in some ways and vulnerable and lonely. And then I sort of extrapolated out from this that there were dozens, hundreds, thousands, millions of people who'd had the same experience, who'd grown up without their siblings or their parents because they'd been taken from them, not by the war or by any kind of natural disaster, but by this strange, horrific beast that had been unleashed in 1918. And having it kind of hovering in the background was, and I'm careful how I say this because it's very difficult to compare suffering and misery, but having that in the background was kind of similar to people who'd lost relatives in the Holocaust. So it was this terrible thing that everybody knew about that had happened, but you didn't talk about because it was so upsetting. So in the centenary year then, um, looking at it 100 years on, what do you think is the main legacy of of the pandemic? Um, That's a huge question. I would say the legacy of it is that we are now much more prepared for such an outbreak. We have um, pandemic contingency plans in every country in the world. For instance, in Britain, the Home Office has got a whole raft of things that if it were to start here tomorrow, they would be able to do. There would be mass mass vaccinations. They would be using places like leisure centres and swimming pools as emergency hospitals or, if necessary, as emergency morgues. They would treat it with the same respect as a huge terrorist attack. That's how important it could be. If we had uh, an outbreak of this type in Britain tomorrow, it would be like blowing up a power station because you would have people unable to work, essential services wouldn't be provided. You know, we would really be um, absolutely on the back foot. So if you think that most countries now have similar contingency plans in hand, the big thing we have going for us is that we do have antibiotics, even though they're not always reliable and they're not as good as they should be. So we can deal with secondary infections. The worst thing with flu really is not just the flu itself, but the secondary infection in the form of um, bronchitis and pneumonia. That's what really gets people. 
uh, I think it's a preparedness. I think it's a knowledge that we shouldn't have to be sort of groping around in the dark as people were then, because so much of the uh, so much of people's efforts were taken up with the war that they really had very little to, left over to spare for sorting out this this war against the ghosts, this war against this uh, mysterious unseen menace. I think it should be remembered as a terrible warning, but I think it should also be remembered as a time of great heroism. Professor John Oxford, who I interviewed several times for my book, said that it was important to remember that in terms of medical care, in terms of what doctors and nurses did, he believed that there were as many acts of heroism taking place on the home front during the Spanish flu pandemic as there were on the Western front. Catherine, thank you so much for your time talking to us today. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Um, And Pandemic 1918, The Story of the Deadliest Influenza in History by Catherine Arnold, was published by Michael O'Mara Books on January 25th and is available now. So that was Catherine Arnold speaking to Eleanor Evans. And if you'd like to read more about the Spanish flu, then do look out for our January issue, which contained a feature about its impact in Britain. You can get hold of that edition as a back issue in print or digital. And that's about it for today, but please do listen in on Thursday when we'll be exploring the history of the Football World Cup. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.